thanks for coming. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted and honored to be here. And I look forward to the question. The questions, there are many questions you're going to ask after my talk. Let me just say that the talk is based on uh, the key ideas that I developed in a book I just published with Polity Press called uh, The Ironic Spectator, um, Solidarity in the Age of Post-Humanitarianism. And it is a book precisely about how solidarity um, has changed in the past 50 years. The concept of solidarity has changed in terms of how we talk about it, how we define it, but also how we experience it and how we practice it. But for now, let me start uh, with a, a positive story, um, the story of, of the Arab Spring, which became very much a story, amongst other things, of uh, new media as catalysts of social mobilization and change. It started locally, it spread regionally, and then it drew uh, the publics of the West in um, sustained acts of solidarity towards those distant protesters who fought against tyrannical regimes. Um, and as one uh, Egyptian activist uh, put it, we use Facebook to schedule uh, protests, Twitter to coordinate, and YouTube to tell the world. And, and these images were kind of widely disseminated online as well. Um, the Arab, Arab Spring was then duly named the Twitter revolution, and theorists, theorists like Emmanuel Castells talked about the communication of revolutions, as he called them, as the future of uh, communication. Um, there is another similar good story, if you like, uh, when it comes to humanitarian crisis. Digital media have given platform and voice, not only to journalists or NGOs, but today also to citizens and to victims. So that mainstream journalism, uh, major news agencies, um, such as Al Jazeera, BBC, CNN, etc., have embraced the voice of the citizen. Um, and journalism, as um, had the ex-head of the uh, BBC World Service, uh, Richard Sambrook, had said, um, after, I think, um, the terror attacks of 7-7, uh, July the 7th in London, Today, the journalism of uh, terror, disaster, and conflict has become a collaborative project between journalists and citizens. So the journalism, as a result, does not only inform, but also connects. It brings ordinary people together in the sharing of their suffering and in the wish to do something to alleviate um, this suffering. Um, another example I would like to draw your attention to, to which I'm going to return to, is the um, earthquake in Haiti in 2010. I'm not sure how I can get into, um, oh, here we are. I just wanted to show you this uh, very early piece of mobile phone footage, which showed the world what it felt like to be, to be experiencing the earthquake. I don't know if we have uh, any sound. Well, this is now 
history, but I think at the time when that was broadcast, certainly uh, in, uh, in, in my own course at the LSE with my students, it, it was discussed as one of the most compelling examples you can have of actually experiencing something far away from the perspective of, of the participant. And uh, it is precisely that, uh, if you like, that uh, first-hand insider's uh, perspective uh, that lies at the heart of these um, celebratory of good stories about how the new media have, um, if you like, um, renewed the hope for connectivity, um, renewed the hope for uh, what some theorists have called um, uh, cosmopolitan solidarity, for uh, experiencing something from the perspective of, of a distant sufferer and, um, and potentially also acting on their suffering uh, in, in many different ways. So indeed, these media uh, make it possible uh, for us to feel as citizens of the world and perhaps act on vulnerable others who need our support. And I'm not here today to challenge that, um, uh, that narrative or to say that this potential for, con uh, for connectivity is, is false. But what I would like to do is to place this optimism uh, in a broader story. Um, the story of how we have come to this the story of how solidarity with distant others has changed in the past 50 years and what this may mean for the ways we talk about and we practice solidarity today as well. Now, changes in the media are, of course, uh, central to that. They are central to the change of uh, practices of solidarity, particularly uh, features like um, inclusivity, interactivity, digital aesthetics. They have all altered patterns of communication and participation, but the media are not uh, the whole um, uh, story. And to reduce the new conditions of communication and participation to the rise of the new media is to impoverish really uh, a bigger story about uh, much more complex political and institutional processes that have taken place um, and, and which have always tried to connect us with distant others and, and their plight. Um, so I'm going to return to the media at the, at the last part of my talk, but for now, uh, let me just start with the concept of solidarity and the concept of the communication of solidarity, what um, it has meant in time and how um, it um, has been practiced before I actually um, return to the contemporary uh, moment. Now, solidarity never had a fixed meaning. It never meant one thing only. Uh, I would um, say, and this is what I'm doing in the Ironic Spectator as well, um, we can talk about solidarity in terms of two major paradigms, historical paradigms. The first one, and here is something that I think captures it quite well, is um, the um, solidarity, the internationalist solidarity of which uh, the Spanish uh, Civil War was uh, was. Uh, perhaps an exemplary case. It is a solidarity that is driven by visions of social justice um, against colonization, against tyrannical regimes, uh, more recently um, uh, in the defense of human rights. It is what we might call a solidarity of revolution. But there is also another kind of solidarity beyond that what we might call a solidarity of salvation. And this picture, I think, captures that sensibility um, um, quite well as well. Pictures of aid, 
to emaciated children. Um, here, we don't have a solidarity that tries to change the conditions of suffering. It doesn't really have a vision of social change, but it tries to alleviate um, the, 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 the suffering of, of, of uh, individuals and to make their lives more tolerable, better, livable. Um, the aid and development field might be more closely associated than with that form of solidarity, the solidarity of, uh, of um, salvation. Even though um, this is part of what I argue uh, in the book, uh, today we can see a rapprochement of those two different types of, 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 uh, of solidarity, so that major NGOs are today um, uh, looking both to defend human rights and at the same time provide infrastructures on the ground that um, somehow make everyday um, conditions of people's lives uh, better. Uh, now, both forms of solidarity can be described in terms of what um, uh, a brilliant French theorist, Luc Boltanski, uh, calls the politics of pity, and this is where my title comes from. Um, and what he means by politics of pity is um, those strong uh, emotions and the, and the moral claims that come with those emotions, um, emotions of indignation in the case of the solidarity of revolution, emotions of empathy or sentimentalism in the case of, um, of uh, the solidarity of salvation, uh, upon which any imperative to act on, on suffering rests. Um, so we might say that the politics of pity is the politics of representing and communicating um, uh, uh, suffering as a cause for concern, um, it can be captured through those two traditional paradigms I just mentioned, soli um, um, revolution and, and, um, and salvation. These are the traditional, if you like, politics of solidarity. But where is solidarity today? Is it still important? Should it be? And um, what can we say about the moral claims that inform contemporary practices of solidarity? Well, let's move to some other pictures here. Beautiful inside and outside. I don't need to expand on this. I don't want to waste time on that. You, you know what this means, and you've, you have see, seen it many times, a kind of celebrity advocacy that speaks in the name of the, of the, of the poor of the global south. Solidarity today is also about, um, for instance, ActionAid's uh, recent campaign. I think that was from 2009 or 10. Um, um, this invitation to come to the happy bubble and discover your ActionAid feeling. Has anyone tried this campaign, uh, online campaign? No? Well, you click on this to discover your ActionAid feeling, and you come onto a a different kind of screen where you are confronted with a quiz about your emotions, um, <coughs> depending on what kinds of pictures you see. So there are pictures of um, um, a gay couple kissing, um, two children in a, in, a, in a playground here in some city of the West, uh, uh, children, um, emaciated children in Africa. And then, depending on which one touches you more, then at the end of the quiz, um, y y your profile comes up. And so you're kind of fluffy and warm, or <laughs> that was what I was. That's what I remember. But there, was, there were other similar descriptions, descriptions of, of, the, of the kind of um, player of that quiz. 
So this is another way in which the message to, to help, the message to assist, the message to participate in practices of solidarity is being visualized and communicated today. The question really is, you know, how did we really go from the heroic comradeship, if you like, of the Spanish Civil War, uh, or the depoliticized but committed benevolence of the aid and development field to the happy bubble? And what exactly is the happy bubble? And here is what ActionAid says about it. What is a happy bubble? Um, uh, we are recreating the amazing feelings people get from supporting um, Action Aid. Surprisingly, this involves space hoppers, blue monsters, and free massages, <laughs> all crammed into giant bubbles. Now, this is a new solidarity. It asks us to act on the world beyond ourselves and the vulnerabilities of that world, not by reaching out and engaging with that world, but by caring primarily about ourselves. And that's the main claim I'm making in the Ironic Spectator as well. Um, so we engage, we are asked to engage with the world by turning inwards and recreating a feel-good moment out of connecting. And again, attention here, connecting not with those people far away, but with action aid online with the brand. And this is exactly what I call post-humanitarian solidarity. Solidarity that precisely um, goes beyond the modernist conceptions of solidarity as either salvation or revolution and proposes action on human vulnerability on the basis of a utilitarian morality, a morality of the self, to recreate, in other words, the amazing feeling people get from supporting action aid. Of course, post-humanitarianism is not the only form of solidarity available today, but it is certainly one of the dominant forms. It's one of the forms that have emerged in the past um, seven years, I think less than a de decade, um, and it is becoming more and more uh, widespread. But why has it emerged? What has brought it about? Um, so the next part of my talk is going to be kind of um, a very brief, if you like, overview of the three, um, if you like, factors that I believe have contributed to the rise of post-humanitarian solidarity. Um, the first one is the retreat of grand narratives of the big politics, if you like, of the past. The second is the commercialization of the aid and development field. And the third, and here I'm coming full circle to what I started from, I started with, um, the rise of new media. Um, so the first change, which is in a way already there in what I've, I've uh, I said earlier, um, is a retreat of, of grand narratives of solidarity, revolution and salvation. Now, the solidarity of revolution, this one has been big in the beginning, if you like, at the middle of the 20th century, but it has been receding for a long time, and certainly so since the end of the Cold War. The certainty of earlier political visions, socialist or communist, um, um, has faded away. And contemporary uprisings, contemporary conflicts appear more contradictory. They appear more messy, more unpredictable, if you like. And that is why it's so difficult to kind of take a stance, for instance, in 
situation of Egypt and how it developed or Syria. Um, so we live in more skeptical, more complicated, if you like, and less heroic times. In terms of the solidarity of salvation, um, the whole project of just saving lives, of course, has also been challenged. And humanitarian organizations and development agencies who took the saving lives a step further and, and wanted to actually provide infrastructures uh, for the well-being of local, sustainable well-being uh, of local populations, have also been accused on, on different uh, counts. They have been accused of failing to protect lives, of getting too close sometimes to corrupt regimes, of failing to uh, being transparent in terms of how they spend their funding. Um, and so there is, if you like, a whole debate today um, that whilst it hasn't undermined once and for all the, the, the work that these organizations uh, do, um, it has certainly introduced a level of, of skepticism, again, if you like, a, 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 a seed of, of doubt in, in, in the kind of um, wholesale goodness of these organizations. Um, so just as with the revolutionary project of the, of, the, of the 20th century, we have also become a little bit more skeptical of impartial good doing or committed development. As a result, uh, we may now look at these images of the civil uh, war in Spain or the Biafra uh, aid um, with this belief. Uh, at best, perhaps, for some of us with some nostalgia about the kind of revolutionary solidarity and, and uh, fraternity that existed then, but we all recognize why a call to arms or the tears for emaciated bodies might no longer be the best way to communicate solidarity today. Which brings me now to the second major change towards post-humanitarian solidarity, which is um, the commercialization of the aid and development field. Now, in the past 15 years, the number of agencies has um, grown um, exponentially, and the competition is uh, fierce in a global, uh, on a global scale. That's a huge market where um, NGOs proliferate, um, and they, they compete for um, uh, a lot of money. So in 2008, for instance, uh, the humanitarian aid sector was worth $18 billion uh, and um, employed about 300,000 people. So it's not a big, a small kind of grassroots uh, movement anymore. It, it has become big business and it needs, or it feels it needs to, to operate um, along the lines of, um, along the lines of, you know, competitive global market. So organizations, practices, and their messages have all become increasingly professionalized. And in the face of skepticism towards the grand moralities of the past, they now borrow directly, their alternative, if you like, appears to be to borrow directly from the corporate sector. Um, so as to aim for more efficiency, more measurable outcomes, but also increase their income through donations and communicate much more, um, yeah, I think the word is professionally, if you like. Um, uh, there are messages to, to people in order to achieve their ends. So um, this is the, the appeal I wanted to show you from Oxfam 2008, but I'm not sure I know how to get out of this.
And we can see there that the call is to to actually either text or go online and engage with that brand. So, you know, this is a form of branding, really. I mean, there is um, there is no linguistic message apart from the monster of injustice. And I think the visualization of social justice or injustice in terms of a monster in a central square in a Western city confronted by, um, you know, a senior citizen um, is, is also quite telling in terms of how these um, these brands are trying to convey the message of solidarity today. So we've got this branding of very well-established names. Oxfam is just an example. We can see a similar, uh, um, 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 similar manifestations in Amnesty International, for instance, or, or ActionAid, as I mentioned earlier. So we've got this new kind of branding appeals. We've got a, a kind of an explosion, almost, of celebrity advoc advocacy. Um, which it was spearheaded by the UN, but is now widespread across a number of major NGOs. Um, and of course, we have other commercialized events, like, for instance, uh, the Live Aid concert, which in its time was quite a big um, kind of um, uh, event in terms of connecting uh, political and humanitarian concerns. Um, in, within, if you like, a framework of show business. So, um, if the, the uh, commercialization of the field is the second factor that I, I, I wanted to mention in relation to the rise of post-humanitarianism, the third one is the capitalization of uh, these forms of communication on the huge potential of the new media. Now I'm coming full circle to you know, my starting uh, argument. Um, so the thing I, uh, the argument I made earlier on uh, was about the potential of the new media to bring populations together in protest, if you like, in a kind of distant echo of the solidarity of, of revolution. But it is similarly true, and this is a good thing, that the majority of uh, uh, contemporary NGOs, the majority of their appeals, as we saw in the Oxfam one, uh, does again rely on people's participation. It includes and kind of um, uses the interactivity of the new media to draw people into uh, the different modes of participation that NGOs want. It's giving money, signing a petition, subscribing to a campaign, buying Christmas presents, downloading songs, offering opinion, all of these things happen online. So um, we are not any more spectators, if you like. Um, we are become uh, producers of messages, and we, we interact with the brands that we uh, are supposed to support. Um, new media, however, um, tend to be um, self-referential. Uh, they tend to reproduce talk by and about those who feed them. They are sites of what Manuel Castells has, I think, quite accurately named, mass self-communication. And this becomes particularly clear when we move away, if you like, from campaigns and concerts and celebrity advocacy and look at my uh, earlier example of, uh, of, of solidarity, which is citizen journalism and the way in which citizen journalism is appropriated by, um, by mainstream platforms when it becomes convergent journalism, journalists and citizens together. 
Of course, citizen journalism has been celebrated as, as a, an important form of activism in disaster communication, and it probably is, particularly in the first stages of disaster. Um, however, looking, uh, for instance, into the BBC Live blog of the Haiti earthquake, which I, I showed you earlier with that uh, embedded um, uh, mobile uh, phone footage, um, we, we will find out, we will see um, and this is research that has been done at the LSC, partly by me, um, we can see that only a handful, handful of the hundreds of entries in the BBC news stream updates on this earthquake actually came from people from, from Haiti itself, apart, of course, from local NGOs which had their own infrastructure. The majority of citizen contributions came from Westerners, who were outpouring emotions of agony, they were expressing support and they wanted to contribute to donations. And those Westerns were not just ordinary citizens, even though some of them were, of course, but there were also celebrities, there were politicians. So that was one point about news and convergent journalism, if you like, as a, as a kind of a, 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 um, a primary platform for um, the communication of solidarity that capitalizes on the new media today. Um, the fact that Westerners are the primary contributors rather than local people who might want to say, tell their story from within. A further comparison now between uh, the Haiti earthquake with um, the communication of Western disasters, be these the storms of the UK or, or sorry, the storms of the United States or the floods in the UK or whatever, throw into a stronger relief uh, another form of inequality, which is the inequality, of course, of the digital divide. Uh, so that um, in Western disasters, we have indeed people speaking from their homes or from the sites of disaster and, and bringing forth their, 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 their perspectives. Whereas in Haiti, we had either NGOs or local politicians doing that. Um, but I don't want to just say that the, the digital divide is just a technological divide. It is not only technological. In my view, um, it is not just a matter of how many mobiles are there on the ground. Um, it is also a political and a cultural divide. Um, it is a matter of voice, if you like. And some voices uh, have greater legitimacy in the global flow of information uh, than other voices. And the voice of the uh, Haitian locals did not have as much legitimacy as the voice of Westerners. Or for that matter, and this is another piece of research that we have done, um, it didn't have as much symbolic capital or as much authority and legitimacy as the voices of the, um, of the Arab Spring participants in their own local environments. Those voices were much easier broke through, were much easier to, to break through um, um, uh, and, and kind of establish themselves in the global information landscape. Um, so these are at least two of the kind of major inequalities that the rise of new media have, um, um, have reproduced in the communication of solidarity and have at least partly contributed to the rise of post-humanitarianism. It's the me, it's the I of the West more than anything else. Um, now, I want to wrap this up, um, and I would like to just uh, say a few words, just recap what the, the key features of post-humanitarian solidarity are, and then just uh, kind of um, in a very brief um, and cursory way, just point to <coughs> what we might 
begin thinking of doing in order to um, imagine alternative ways of, of communicating the plight of distant others. So what are the key features of, of uh, post-humanitarian solidarity? Uh, first of all, um, a strong orientation towards the West, which is not only the producer of, uh, um, of uh, these images, of these uh, messages, and the recipient of these messages, but is also the main participant of those messages as well. Um, um, and um, if you like related to that, a proliferation of, of the I, of myself or others like me, in the happy bubble, in the celebrities, in citizen journalists, we have this eye that we can easily recognize. And we have an almost elimination of the figure of the vulnerable other, of those people whose our support or help um, is supposed to make a difference to the lives of. The second, if you like, a feature is a prioritization of the brand, be that Oxfam, ActionAid, Amnesty, uh, or even brands of the show business like Angelina Jolie or Bono, etc., etc. A prioritization of the brand over the cause. So we hear very little about the reasons why should we help? Why, let's say in the Oxfam uh, appeal, injustice, why is that bad? Or what has brought about injustice? Of course, you can't have a campaign that kind of is also an academic essay about you know, the kind of historical conditions of, of global inequality. But I, at least I feel a bit uncomfortable about you know, the metaphorical visualizations of big issues that have to do with values, with moral claims, with um, uh, you know, political questions that are so contested into, you know, into a monster that can just go away like that. So it's about that prioritization of a marketized logic of a, a, a debate over causes. And third, a replacement of what we might call um, deontological moralities, the moralities of we have to help because that is the moral thing to do. The moralities of social change, be that saving lives, oh, sorry, social change or saving lives, <coughs> with what we might call again a utilitarian morality of what is good for me, which is essentially a private, not a public morality. It's not a morality that orients us towards, towards the world of others. It's a morality that brings us back to ourselves and in touch with us. Now, can we imagine alternatives? Well, let me first say that I'm not rejecting post-humanitarianism wholesale. I can see why it has an appeal, both for media organizations and also for the big, you know, the humanitarian sector. In appeals, in celebrities, in concerts, in news, it is easy, it's effortless, um, and it is not demanding. Why should we all just make such a huge sacrifice in time, effort, or energy to help far away people. We have busy lives and you know clicking uh, on a website is, is the easy way to do it. So I can see the kind of appeal of that. But I think what we should also do is ask the crucial question of what is lost by opting for th that particular um, um, that particular way of communicating solidarity and engaging with the demand of solidarity. First of all, and I think I've hinted to that a couple of times already, what is lost is the big question of, of, of social justice and, 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 and the, if you like, the demand for social change that has been there for a long time and which is still um, important today, and everyone would acknowledge that, 
but somehow it has slipped away from the contemporary um, circuits of communicating um, the cause of distant suffering as a cause for solidarity. And the second thing that I think is, has been lost is our confrontation with the humanity of other people. You see, our humanity is a very valued humanity, but it's not the only humanity that exists in the world. Other people have their own way of being, and we need to be able to see that, to engage with that, and to understand that to the extent that we can. We cannot understand complete otherness. But distant, vulnerable um, others are not wholly other. There is a way in which we can engage with one another. Where are they? Why can't we see them? Why can't we hear their voice in that new paradigm? So I think these are the two, the two losses. I could leave it to that, actually, and, um, and perhaps leave the uh, final part of my talk, which is about imagining new ways of communicating solidarity to emerge out of the discussion, if you're interested in very that. Very good. Thanks well, thank very you. much. Thank you.